Hello, listeners, and welcome to Season 5 of Raw Talk. So the last six months have been a bit surreal as the world grappled with the COVID-19 pandemic, and we just wanted to say we hope that you're all doing well. Stay safe and take time for yourself. Like many of you, we've been trying to keep up with the rapid pace of COVID-19 discovery and the evolving public health situation since March. And as we adapt to the new normal, it's clear that the current pandemic has far-reaching effects on health, research, society, and even our planet. So over eight weeks this summer, we hosted COVID Decoded, a series of live stream discussions all about COVID-19. We spoke with virologists and epidemiologists, experts in public health, mental health, climate change, and health equity, scientists at the forefront of developing COVID-19 tests, and leaders of the COVID-19 Immunity Task Force. We learned so much from the series and wanted to kick off our new season by bringing you the highlights of the discussions and our reflections and lessons learned. Before we begin, we wish to acknowledge this land on which the University of Toronto and our podcast operates. For thousands of years, it has been the traditional land of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit River. Today, this meeting place is still the home to many Indigenous people from across Turtle Island, and we are grateful to have the opportunity to work on this land. Today's episode will feature all of the COVID-decoded hosts, their reflections on the series, and highlights from the live stream discussions. My name is Kat and I will be your host of hosts. Now, one last thing before we jump into today's discussion. To celebrate almost half a decade of Raw Talk, we are hosting a friendraiser and need your help to spread the word. If you like what you hear, share the show with a friend and you will receive your very own Raw Talk podcast sticker in the mail. Check out the link in our show notes to participate. Well, all right, let's get into it. So joining me for this roundtable discussion are the COVID Decoded hosts. First up is Yegnesh. Hi, I'm Yegnesh. I did Coronaviruses 101. Next, we've got Jesse, who's joining us remotely today. Hello, I'm Jesse. I hosted the Mathematical Modeling and Epidemiology episode and also the episode on intersections with climate change. And Aaron. Hi, everyone. This is Aaron, and I hosted the Psychological Impacts episode and also the Health Equity Lens episode. Next up, we've got Nathan. Hi, I'm Nathan. I hosted Public Health Policy. And Grace. Hi, everyone. This is Grace. I hosted our episode on immunity. And our final host, Thamia, is not able to join us today, but she hosted the discussion on COVID-19 testing. Now, we'll be pulling some clips from our live stream audio, but if you'd like to hear the full discussion, all of the links are available in our show notes. So I guess a good place to start is way back in March, when everything first went into lockdown. We had been hearing about this novel coronavirus for weeks at that point, but it felt like everything just happened very suddenly. One day we were going into the lab, and then the next, everyone was being told to stay home, businesses were closing down, hospitals were preparing for this huge wave of cases. Do you remember how you were all feeling around the start of the pandemic? Nathan, let's start with you. Sure. Uh, I know you mentioned March, but I'm going to actually scroll back a bit to late December, early January. I was on Raw Talk Podcast, and we were doing the uh, prep for the episode on pandemics. So, you know, this was this said, come up. Right in January, we'd been talking to a whole bunch of public health experts, and then towards the end of January, we couldn't even find public health experts to talk to because it was just so difficult to find someone who could talk on about this new COVID-19. At the time, we didn't even know it was called COVID-19. We called it the novel coronavirus. So come around March, how did I feel about this pandemic? You know, I, having heard my discussion, having seen the lockdown in Wuhan and, you know, chatting with the people on pandemics on the pandemics episode, I was kind of seeing this as like, well, about time, you know, this, this was going to happen. I will say that like, I was more concerned about not myself personally, because I'd been kind of like keeping track of this from the pandemics episode, but rather actually I was more concerned about people around me. And Grace, what about you? I think in general, we were all feeling a lot of uncertainty and uh, just generally like worry about the situation because we were being kind of kicked out of our labs and some of us are unable to do our research. Some of us at least were having our research disrupted in terms of kind of our everyday that we were used to. Yeah, that's a really excellent point. Since most of us on the team are graduate students, the pandemic has also had uh, an impact on our research. And in our final stream with Dr. David Naylor, who's the co-chair of Canada's COVID-19 Immunity Task Force, he made a really excellent point about the impact of the pandemic on research trainees and young investigators specifically. The biggest worry is, to me, not so much collaboration, but, you know, we put a whole bunch of young people on ice because we've 
suspended some of our usual activities. Labs were closed for a long time. Young investigators who weren't in this field would be struggling to make their way. Some, some senior investigators and younger investigators pivoted and have capitalized on COVID funding. But the response capacity we have in science in Canada was built over decades. And we can't have this event end up you know, being a situation where we don't continue building that capacity across the board. And to me, that you know, one of the big lessons of this terrible epidemic is Canada needs strong science capacity. It has to build the next generation. It has to sustain the current generation of scientists. It can't be focused only narrowly because some of the people who are doing the best work pivoted from other areas. So that to me is, is uh, the bigger long-term concern. Collaboration right now is brilliant, but let's make sure we build capacity at home to continue to uh, do our fair share uh, in the years ahead. So was your research impacted by the pandemic? And how are you coping with that? Yagnesh, maybe you can start us off. Sure. So uh, I work in a wet lab and uh, I work with cells. So I have to go in on weekends uh, on random times to go and uh, replenish the media, which means to feed the cells, basically. So what I ended up having to do since we had lockdown for three months was I just had to freeze them all. So uh, you freeze them all at minus 80 and they you can rethaw them, but this is not a very uh, efficient process. You lose a lot of cells. And I was working on making a uh, specialized gene engineered cell line. And right after I had isolated it, I had to put it on ice pretty much. So my project was on ice for three months and I, I think I was coping with it okay. Like my PI is very uh, nice and supportive. So I didn't have that pressure, but outside of that, it, it is quite jarring to be honest. Like I can't work on my, something that I've dedicated so much time to, and that's affecting like how fast I can graduate. So let's, I'd say I'm doing okay overall, but could be better. <laughs> you know, I actually was kind of fortunate in that, um, you know, my research did get put on hold in, in, a, in a way, but I was actually able to do a little bit of research on COVID um, because my lab does mathematical modeling research. So I was looking into the serial interval of COVID and the generation time, which is basically the, the average amount of time between subsequent infections. And so I was able to kind of feel like I was contributing to the solution in a way, uh, working on some of that stuff. But on the other hand, we had a lot of conversations with our lab as we were pivoting towards COVID research a little bit. You know, how much can we really put on hold all those other commitments that we made to, to other grants and, and community members that we were working with for that previous research and um, making sure that we really weighed the pros and cons of, uh, you know, how we're spending our time. Sounds like everyone's had to go through a lot of changes and adjustments, whether it's putting your research on hold or, you know, kind of pivoting what you're studying. And I know as a podcast, one of the biggest changes that we had to make was our annual live event. So we were in the midst of planning, you know, a 200 person live podcasting event on climate change and health around the time that the pandemic was declared. So obviously we had to make some changes. And after much discussion, we landed on the topic and format of what is now the COVID Decoded series. And honestly, I think when we decided to do live stream discussions with experts on the subject of COVID-19, I don't think any of us really understood what we were getting into. And as a podcast, we're definitely very used to relying on our editors to make us all sound good. But with a live stream, that really wasn't an option. So in terms of hosting, what were some of the biggest challenges with moving to the live stream format? And Aaron, as one of the co-organizers of this event, maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. You know, as a host, I think a lot of us had plenty of experience being a host on our regular season. But again, I think like Kat mentioned, we ha always have the safety blanket of our audio engineers to, you know, cut out inconcise language, to cut out filler words. And we really didn't have that option. And I think that also added a bit of anxiety to hosting the live stream because, we don't have that safety blanket and also that it's going to be recorded permanently on YouTube, which was an added layer of anxiety. And then in terms of the actual day of, I think learning how to juggle everything while live was a big adjustment. Learning how to handle all the logistical challenges offline with the team while still being engaged in the discussion with the guests was definitely something that I learned to do. Yagnesh, you were our first live stream host any comments on that experience? 
Uh, I really enjoyed it. But before then, uh, we had like two weeks. I know me and you were sitting in that uh, small room along with uh, Alex trying to figure out like every little detail, trying to put up the our poster up behind to make it uh, look like a new show. Yeah, it was it, it was kind of fun and uh, very nerve wracking at that point. Uh, so yeah, it, once I got started and got over the jitters, it was just like a normal podcast interview. Yeah, it was all it was all very stressful, but at the end of the day, I think people understand these days that technology you're limited by it. But on the other hand, we we appreciate the fact that we can even have these kind of opportunities because of technology uh, in the first place. So. Also, a shout out to, especially on the technical side of things, Alex, but also Richie and Nathan and other members of our team who every day that we were recording, as well as a lot of time on top of that, were kind of in our like makeshift studio, troubleshooting, making sure everything went smoothly, all the different components that were involved in making the live stream so kind of professional and look as good as it did. Yeah, thanks for that, Grace. Definitely could not have done it without our team. And, you know, despite all of those difficulties, I think that our team really came through and put together a great series of discussions. I definitely learned a lot from each live stream, and it really helped me wrap my mind around the research on COVID and the wider impact of the pandemic. Actually, our very first stream with Dr. Karen Mossman, virologist and vice president of research at McMaster University, was super informative in terms of understanding what the SARS-CoV-2 virus was and how it was different from the original SARS virus back in 2003. The two viruses are, I think, at the protein level, about 95% similar. Wow. So we're not surprised that SARS-2 uses the same um, receptor as the original SARS. But that it, it can't be as simple as that because, you know, the, the symptoms and the ability to transmit are very different. Mm-hmm. You know, the original SARS was more of a lower respiratory tract infection, not an upper. The original SARS didn't transmit as efficiently, but it did have a higher mortality rate. Whereas when you have predominantly an upper and nasal sort of um, infection, that's partially what really lends itself to that transmission because any cough any sneeze runny nose um, saliva I mean it's when you have a really upper respiratory tract and and nasal type of infection transmission is is much more robust than if it's a really deep lower Mm. respiratory tract infection and another subtle difference with this virus is, and again, it could be due to those, you know, it's 5% changes, but 5% is still, you know, quite a bit at the protein level. You know, the ability to have the infections that are the asymptomatic infections. There were very few asymptomatic infections that we understood with the original SARS. If you really develop that lower respiratory tract infection, you know, and almost everyone that had symptoms was positive. Right. You know, now we know there's a lot of asymptomatic carriers and that enables spread. And, and I think that's really why, um, you know, we're seeing we're seeing such robust spread. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't know you have it, it it's hard. It's easier yeah. to, to quarantine and to protect yourself if you know you're infected. That's if true. you don't know you're infected, it's so much easier to spread a virus. So, Yagnesh, you hosted the conversation with Dr. Mossman. Can you tell us more about what you learned about asymptomatic transmission? So with the lower respiratory versus upper respiratory, I think that's a good point that she brought up because in uh, one of the first large uh, seroprevalence studies that came out of Spain in early July, I'd say, the majority of the Spanish population was tested as seronegative to SARS-CoV-2 infections. And even in hotspot areas, the infection rates aren't very high. And most PCR-confirmed cases actually do have detectable antibodies, but a substantial portion of the people that did show uh, symptoms did not have PCR tests, and at least a third of the infections that were determined through uh, serology were asymptomatic, which is huge. 33% of the population uh, that had it didn't show any symptoms, and as Dr. Mossman mentioned, it's huge in how this virus transmits. So uh, I think that's a very good point. Speaking of testing, our sixth episode was focused on COVID-19 testing. And in particular, our guests, Dr. Adeli, head of clinical biochemistry at SickKids, and Mary Catherine Bond, one of his graduate students, clarified the difference between the two types of tests that can be done. First, there are viral PCR tests, which assess whether you have an active infection. 
And then there's also antibody testing, which can detect the presence of antibodies against SARS-CoV-2. So I think the most commonly used test right now is, of course, the PCR test, the molecular test for the viral RNA to detect current infection. So that would be, for example, if someone was presenting with some clinical symptoms that were similar to COVID and presented to an emergency department or a hospital, they could get tested in order to see if they were actively infected. On the other hand, um, you could also use this for screening. So for individuals who are about to have surgery or are about to enter perhaps a long-term care facility, you can determine and if there is an active infection there. So the test that Mary Catherine is referring to in this clip is the one that's done using the nasopharyngeal swab. Just out of curiosity, has anyone here gotten tested? I haven't actually gotten tested, but everyone I talk to who has says it's really uncomfortable, but it doesn't hurt. Okay, I'm going to have to beg to differ. So I had the misfortune of having to go and visit an ER about two weeks ago. And in visiting in the ER, they make everybody get a COVID test. And uh, painful... <laughs> is one word I would maybe use to describe it. It's It felt like somebody was taking a pick into my brain, <laughs> which was not nice. I mean, like, I, if, I, if frankly, like, if I wanted to get tested, like, I would get tested again, but, like, I would rather just not get infected in the first place because it was not a pleasant experience. The closest analogy I'd say is, like, someone trying to pull your brain out through your nose. It's not fun, but... And that's not painful? Actually not painful. Like, it, it was just uncomfortable, you know? Like, someone doing it with surgical precision. Okay, but, like, there are parts of my head and face that I did not know existed until I got my COVID test. Good to know. So, if any of you who haven't gotten the test, there you have it. So, the second type of test that we discussed was the antibody test, which is not being done widely yet, but I'll let Mary Catherine explain. The tests that are currently available at Health Canada, they're not testing for whether these antibodies can be used to combat the virus, just that you have them. If you're antibody positive, that doesn't necessarily mean that your um, viral test may be negative. So you can be positive for both tests, and therefore, if you detect antibodies, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're totally past the infection. They tell you nothing about the immunity status. So that would require a more specialized test, which what we would call a neutralization assay, and those tests aren't really broad available right now. So just because you have, or let's say you test positive for these antibodies, doesn't mean that you are immune to prior or previous infection. So there's a lot we still don't know about antibody testing and immunity for the COVID-19 virus. But Mary Catherine made it clear that continuing testing should be a key part of our public health strategy moving forward. I think the consensus among laboratory professionals has been test, 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 test as much as possible, especially for molecular testing, not only in people who present with symptoms, but also, as we alluded to earlier, for screening purposes, when, you know, someone may be undergoing surgery where there's a risk of aerosolization or if they're going in to an area with more at-risk populations. So I think the availability of testing, particularly molecular testing, has been really key in guiding public health decisions in terms of exposure um, in many different populations. I think antibody testing hasn't yet got there in terms of its use in public health, but I think in the next few months, we'll definitely see these serological assays playing a much greater role. A current key role of antibody tests has been in the large-scale seroprevalence studies that were led by Canada's COVID-19 Immunity Task Force, co-chaired by Dr. David Naylor. Dr. Naylor was a guest in our last episode focused on immunity in Canada. Grace, as the host of this live stream, did anything stand out to you about the results of these studies? In our discussion, Dr. Naylor shared findings that over 20,000 Canadians have been tested so far, using sources like Canadian Blood Services and Hema-Quebec and that the general prevalence in the population seems to be around 1%. So this is about three times higher than the rates we're currently finding using tests for active infections. And for context, in the study that Yagnesh mentioned earlier, the prevalence in Spain has been found to be around 5%. So this low prevalence really highlights the high susceptibility to the virus that Canadians still have, and the need for continued precautions to prevent outbreaks. The same things have also been seen in pets. So there was a study of about 700 Italian pets, and they found that about 3 to 4% of the pets actually had antibodies to the COVID virus. So it mirrors very similarly to humans. What's not known, though, currently is whether they can infect humans again. It sounds like research on the SARS-CoV-2 virus and the development of these tests has been moving quite rapidly. And it's been cool to see how quickly scientists can pivot from their typical research to study the new coronavirus 
and to establish collaborations globally to do that. But we've seen this type of enthusiastic response to pandemics and epidemics before. In our final live stream with Dr. David Naylor, he called for continued investment in immunology research and public health. We, we need to invest in virology. We need to keep investing in immunology. We need to keep the science substrate going. And I, I do worry that we, we get focused on virology after every fresh outbreak or epidemic of any proportion, just as we get focused on public health for a year or two. And then this kind of thinking goes into abeyance. There will be more zoonoses. There will be more outbreaks. They may come faster with global warming and the crowding of the planet. And I, I think we need to be on alert for more of the same in the years ahead. And that's simply an imperative in terms of the science and the public health investments that need to be made in the future. Dr. David Naylor has been a huge advocate for science research and funding in Canada. You can hear more about that and from him on episode 65, Investing in Knowledge, the Life Cycle of Research, as well as episode 66, Investing in Tomorrow, Why Are You Voting Science? And this idea of continued investment and planning as central in our ability to respond to future waves of COVID-19 or other future pandemics was echoed by Dr. Rivet Goel, member of the Governing Council for CanCOVID, the National Research Platform for COVID-19 Research, in our fourth installment of the COVID Decoded series. So first of all, I think and we need to be honest with the population about the vaccine. And I, I agree with you, it's one to two years, uh, not Operation Warp Speed and uh, we'll have it by December, like yeah. Donald Trump is promising. Um, and then, we, as you also said, we have to be honest that it will take several more years to roll out a global campaign because it's not just, a, you know, we'll have to prioritize in Canada, but we'll have to prioritize around the world. And, you know, we're going to be looking at getting at least $5 billion doses mm -hmm. to people around the world to get to levels of herd immunity. We also don't know if a vaccine will need to, we'll have to do it annually, like flu or so on. So I think we have to be honest with people about how long it's going to take mm -hmm. and what that's going to look like. And, and I think we also have to be ready for a fall wave and, and for continued sporadic outbreaks. We can't just keep saying we're going to have to go back into another lockdown if we can't manage it, we have to be ready. And we know a lot more than we did back in March. Mm -hmm. We know about which kinds of communities the outbreaks were in, which kinds of work settings. Let's make sure that they're prepared so we don't have outbreaks in meatpacking plants mm -hmm. and long-term care facilities, uh, homeless shelters, agriculture workers. Like We know the settings in which we've had the outbreaks, and so we should really be focusing on that. We know the people that are most likely to get hospitalized and die. And, and so we need to make sure we have the supports for those. But we also know that there's a lot of people who are at much lower risk. So what do you all think about the idea of preparing for a pandemic? Nathan, let's start with you. You know, after especially 2003, the IHR 2005, those are the international health regulations, they were created in the aftermath of the 2003 SARS pandemic. And then since then, we also have, at least in Ontario, Public Health Ontario, Toronto Public Health, uh, all these coordinating public health agencies that were also created as an aftermath of the IHR. And so I think we can prepare for a pandemic. I think it's difficult, though, to prepare for the most severe event possible. Like, this is a, an example of a situation or a tail risk that is very, very, very large and long and difficult to deal with and hard to quantify. And so, you know... We, I think we can prepare for pandemics to an extent. We can prepare for them by like doing what the IHR prescribed, monitoring your populations for you know abnormal symptoms and the spread of contagious infections. But it could be harder, I guess, to prepare for the most severe outcome when you know it just never happens. I think what you're kind of getting at too is there's kind of like a cost benefit. Um, analysis there too. Of course, it's really incredibly important to prepare for pandemics, but like how many resources we put into that and how extensive that preparation is would obviously be an upfront cost and kind of finding the balance there with like how much it would benefit us when we do actually have a pandemic. I will say in contrast to what Nathan said and a little bit to what you said as well, Grace, that we've known about coronaviruses and bats since the first outbreak. So uh, while things have been moving and it's hard to take like a holistic approach to a like once in a century event, like uh, how this pandemic has been spreading, 
I, I will say it, we do need to continue support for basic research into these topics so we can be better prepared at just the basic general knowledge level at, of, uh, in some of these cases. So I think we could definitely do a lot better as well. Yeah, I just want to echo those points both, actually, because uh, I do think the public health response has been pretty successful. Like we've known what to do, and then it's just a matter of, of implementation in, in one hand. But then I think one of the things we hadn't really considered is what are the downstream implications of those kind of more um, hardline measures? And, and the you know public health kind of had an idea of what needed to get done, but you know the economic suffering and um, what that means for people in their day-to-day lives on a, on a really long time scale like we're looking at right now. I don't know if those kind of conversations had been happening in those spheres. I think you can definitely learn things from the first wave, as uh, we've heard, and plan for it. We know where most of the outbreaks are likely to occur, and we know ways to stop it. But even within Canada, and I think Dr. Gual alluded to this, there are communities that are at greater risk and that have potentially fewer resources. And so that we can very well plan for in advance, and that is very much a public health concern and also uh, one that we need to take very seriously. Those are all excellent considerations. And just jumping off, Aaron, your last point, we've heard repeatedly that the COVID-19 pandemic has been shining a light on the inequities in our institutions. And across all of our discussions, our guests commented on the disproportionate impact of the virus on marginalized and racialized groups in particular. In our seventh episode, Aaron approached the pandemic through the lens of health equity to try and unpack some of these systemic underlying issues. Dr. Kynwin Pope, a guest on this episode and medical resident in the University of Toronto's Public Health and Preventive Medicine program, summarized this idea perfectly. There are these underlying health inequities, meaning there are differences in health outcomes between different groups of people that are unfair and systemic in nature. And so by breaking it down that way, different levels of exposure, different levels of susceptibility and severe disease and different levels of the way you're treated after the disease, you can see very clearly how all of these systems of inequality that are underlying our society are contributing to exacerbation of COVID-19 and why they're being concentrated in these groups. So Erin, you hosted this stream. What did you take away from your conversation? So I think we had an incredibly long and fruitful discussion with Dr. Pope that we just heard from, as well as Dr. Roberta Timothy. And I think the main thing that was just very clear is that, you know, inequities and systemic racism are so deeply rooted within our colonial societal structures and they impact the health outcomes of Black, Indigenous, racialized and marginalized communities within our entire history up to present day. We also discussed in the episode this term of syndemics, which is the idea that there's essentially two pandemics that are happening parallel. One is of COVID, of course, and the parallel pandemic is of inequality. And I think that that really resonated and stuck with me. Echoing the point Dr. Pope made about how different levels of exposure and susceptibility can affect health outcomes, Dr. Jeff Kwong, program leader of the Populations and Public Health Program at ICES, expanded on this in episode four. I think it boils down to uh, two factors. I think it boils down to workplaces and housing. You know, think of where, where do we spend most of our time, either at work or at home? And so I think it's not as much about, you know, visible minority groups and immigrants as much as where people are working and where people are living and that these workplaces may be unsafe for them. So if you're able to work from home, then that's, you know, a much safer environment. But if you have to go out to work, Um, and you're potentially exposed to the virus. So a lot of the people who had to continue working through this pandemic, you know, were at risk of exposure. And a lot of these people were visible minorities and uh, immigrants. You know, they're at jobs such as like personal support workers and and nursing homes, or they work in, you know, food processing uh, facilities. So these are just some examples where they may be working in close contact with others. They either don't have access to personal protective equipment, or they don't have training uh, on how to use it. And then they're going home where there may be a crowded living conditions. So there may be um, many people living in an apartment or in a house, you know, multi-generational families, where it would be hard to maintain physical distancing with others. And so then they introduce the virus uh, into their household, and it spreads to the household, 
And maybe one of the other people in that household also has to go to work and then they bring it to their uh, workplace and then so on and so forth. That's, that's how we were seeing it spread um, in, in March and April uh, and May. As the host of this live stream, Nathan, what did you take away from the discussion with your guests? You know, I found it actually really comforting to hear this being explained, this association between COVID and marginalized communities. I think very early on, there was a really a legitimate worry that certain communities, immigrants for whatever reason, Black people, Chinese people, were at a disproportionate risk of negative outcomes from COVID. So for example, I remember very early on, there was a study that was talking about how Chinese people or East Asians have higher levels of ACE2 receptors in their lungs and therefore might be at greater susceptibility. And so, you know, seeing that kind of research come out very early, it was hard to kind of contextualize and understand it and basically say, like, is this a real effect? And then kind of since then, we've now seen a lot more research come out and it's actually, no, you know, certain races, for example, are not actually more susceptible because of something about their race per se. It's rather about how their identities interact with social determinants of health and how these social determinants of health themselves are disproportionately affect certain communities. That reminds me of a, a quote, which is that race in and of itself is not the risk factor, it's racism. And I think, you know, having these conversations and bringing all of these issues to light are so important for all of our understandings and, and learnings moving forward. And, you know, in episode two, Dr. Sharmista Mishra, infectious disease physician and mathematical modeler at St. Michael's Hospital, told us about how COVID-19 transmission models are accounting for these different levels of risk and support and why these data are so important. So it's becoming an evident in how the epidemic has evolved, thinking about congregate settings, whether you know, fixed or due to social constructs that limit physical distancing, for example, or limited with respect to infection com prevention control practices and supports mm -hmm. a priori or a before the outbreak. Mm -hmm. And so that that led to um, increased transmission. So thinking about those elements and particularly those that level of heterogeneity with onward transmission, because that will influence not just forecasting down the road, particularly when we get closer to an R of one, you know, we really fluctuate according to sort of these heterogeneities. Um, but second is just from an intervention perspective, you know, sort of this one size shoe fits all approach where we just reduce one element of our equation and reduce contact rate could apply very differently across if there is actual heterogeneity, both because that baseline risks might be different, but also because access to interventions and testing and supports might also be different. Yeah. So heterogeneity and risk, heterogeneity and access and or inequities really mm -hmm. could sort of continue to drive transmission, which we might miss out mm -hmm. on if we don't think about that in our transmission model. That's not to say every transmission model has to have it, but if one of our questions is, you know, what role does heterogeneity play? What interventions? How do we distribute interventions? Mm. What do we need to think about for protecting vulnerable populations or facilitating support so that we reduce transmission across vulnerable populations and settings? Then we need to be thinking about that in our transmission model mechanistically. Mm. Jesse, as the host for the discussion with Dr. Mishra, can you unpack that clip for us? Yeah, so it gets back to some kind of fundamental theories in epidemic modeling that honestly are like two decades or more old. Some really early research basically showed that even just a small kind of core group, and sometimes that framing is even problematic because it attributes kind of a, a responsibility of that group on an individual level that we try to avoid. But, you know, the role of a core group in kind of, it's most important to reach them with the interventions because if you don't, then the epidemic can kind of smolder and if you were to measure the epidemiological characteristics that might facilitate transmission outside that core group, you'd say, oh, this epidemic is going to die out on its own. But if you haven't kind of collected data on that group and also uh, simulated them appropriately in the model and then use that information to prioritize interventions to them, you may assume that some intervention that is kind of generic and applied to the whole population might solve the epidemic. And it really isn't sufficient for those key populations. And on the topic of data and in response to the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on Black and Indigenous communities, there's been ongoing discussion about collecting race-based and socioeconomic data. There are definitely benefits and limitations of collecting this information, and our guests on the seventh live stream touched on this. Here's Dr. Roberta Timothy, Director of Health Promotion at the Dalana School of Public Health. 
We want the data to be able to do real active change work. And it needs to be done by people who are experiencing the violence and people who have done research in this area, people who already know how to do amazing programming, right? And we want the data to kind of, the data is used to, to show what we already know, that there's disparities and hopefully can create programs that can change disparities, including responsibility and accountability from the government. Mm -hmm. The government needs to be accountable for health disparities and public health, health disparities in this province and to change. So the data should be able to be used to do so. So it's not data for data. Don't collect data for data. We're collecting data to create equitable change and health equity programs for people who have been exploited and violated within the system. Erin, can you walk us through the pros and cons of collecting race-based data that you discuss with your guests? All of this is very much needed. There are also various risks to collecting this type of data, which we definitely discussed more in depth in the episode. Part of this risk involves the misuse or misinterpretation of the data that can help to perpetuate racism or discrimination if the data is not owned and collected properly by Black, Indigenous health researchers as well. And you know, it kind of touches on what Dr. Timothy highlighted um, within the clip, which is that we can't just collect data for data. It needs to be tied with intervention and resource development. And we also need to hold the government accountable in these endeavors. Quantitative data really can't capture or reflect the humanity behind people that are most deeply affected. And this can only be done through um, sharing of stories and continuous learning of um, the people that are actually affected. As you just touched on, Erin, one of the disadvantages of race-based data collection is that it cannot capture the stories and provide the context behind the numbers. And in our third live stream, Donna Alexander, a social worker and former vice president of the Black Health Alliance, helped provide some of that context behind the multi-layered psychological impact of the pandemic for Black communities. I think that our community, my community, has been hit especially hard yeah. with this virus, right? And I think in some respect, the, the virus was the straw that broke the camel's back because we were already as a as a vulnerable community we were already coping with so many other issues right in terms of you know social exclusion all the other social factors and then we had you know what was going on in terms of of you know the racial tensions and, and the the trauma resulting from that right so in terms of our own of the mental health impact it was an added factor for us, right? We also, a lot of us started to experience racial stress, racial trauma, and the racial battle fatigue that came with that, right? Because we, yes, we're in the middle of the pandemic, but like one of my coworkers would say, racism didn't go into quarantine, right? And so even in Toronto, where you see there were presence of nooses in certain environments, right? And so, you know, that's why I say that to a lot of us, it's cumulative, right? And so the impact and, and the community, and I can't speak obviously for the, for the entire community, but I think, you know, in general, the, you know, a lot of us, it's, it's yes, it's the, it's the COVID-related anxiety, but it's also the racial trauma that we, we're dealing with. It's the depression. So it's so multifaceted and multilayered, right, in terms of, of all the, the mental health issues. That, that's been going on in general for the general population, but in particularly for, for the African diaspora and, and the lack of control, you know, the lack of control that we that, that some of us feel. So it's multilayered for us. I think another important aspect of this conversation on health equity in the time of COVID is the ability of groups to adapt to a crisis. Chuk Ojanibo, PhD student and director of Ancestral Services at Future Ancestor Services, highlighted the need for systemic solutions to these systemic problems. So it's a systemic issue, so societal systemic issue. So getting angry with an individual because they're going out uh, within that two-week time frame that they should not be going out. Getting angry with an individual because they're not wearing a mask ignores the fact that it's not that individual. It's a societal issue. And then we see the same thing again, climate change. I know we should be talking about differences, but that's very much similarity. We see the exact same thing with climate change where we're angry at that other person because they got a plastic bag from the shopping mall. They didn't bring their own reusable bag. But what if they're a mother of four, single mother of four who just didn't have time to run home and grab a reusable bag? And reusable bag mm -hmm. is like five bucks a piece. You know, mm -hmm. and if you're working two jobs to like accommodate four kids, that five bucks is important for you. 
You know, it's all of these different things where we need to like have conversations about with ourselves as a society. Do we actually have equal access to putting in place measures that protect the environment and protect ourselves in terms of COVID and disease resilience? I think Chuck brings up a lot of interesting and important points here, and this conversation really made me reflect on the individualistic and collectivist aspects of our society. It's a balance in Canada. I think we're all willing to make these personal sacrifices on a short-term basis, like social distancing and, you know, sacrificing our social life and these sorts of things and wearing a mask. But um, when it talks about these systemic level changes that we kind of heard about a minute ago, we're not we're not really willing to make those changes and, you know, pay higher taxes essentially to fund the social programs that might solve some of these systemic issues. That's really gets a lot of pushback and and, and same thing with uh, our dependence on energy resources. And yeah, there's there's certain things that we're not willing to give up. And so I think that really pushes back against this idea that we are a socialist kind of society. Absolutely. And while this pandemic has been devastating for much of the world, and we certainly do not want to make light of its impact, a theme that did come up throughout our discussions was the potential to use this opportunity to make those sustainable changes and to shake up the status quo. The pandemic has taken an incredible toll, and there's definitely a lot that we can learn on a scientific, societal, and even personal level. And on that individual level, Dr. Timothy challenged us to reflect and critically examine our own roles within our society. Think about the people who are being impacted bravely within this context and and rethink um, how you're going to act. Unlearn and challenge what you think you know. The the, the surveillance of of Black folks and and Indigenous folks by police need to be challenged because it's something that is preventing people from leaving their house. It's it's something that is creating... uh, continued structural violence, and it does impact our health and our health access. So policing and looking at how to change that is really critical. Decolonizing your ideologies and practices are also really important. It's something I always say, how do you change yourself? We have to change the structural system, but we have to also change ourselves. So what is your accountability for the next steps? And so jumping off of that clip, what changes have you been trying to implement and how are you keeping yourselves accountable? As the host of this conversation, Erin, maybe we'll start with you. I think in general, the period of this pandemic has definitely allowed and afforded a lot of time for self-reflection in many areas of my personal life. But I think a big part of this reflection has also been taking time to reflect on my own biases and assumptions and ideologies and especially as dialogue surrounding COVID health inequities and as BLM ramped up, I think that all of these conversations within myself, but also with people around me very much needed. And just having sort of those candid and open discussions about, you know, how we look at the world and how we respond to the world, I think are just so important in terms of personal accountability. And so, yeah, I think in general, it's just been a really excellent and much needed time for uh, reflection. And building off of that, in terms of changes that I've been trying to implement and echoing Aaron as well, is that taking the time and prioritizing just educating myself. There's a wealth of resources out there that are continually being added to. I've definitely been taking the time to explore these and I encourage our listeners to as well. Yeah, and I think that's so important, especially because one of the themes that's come out of these conversations, I think, has been how exhausting it can be to be asked about how you can help if you're you know, part of these groups who are uh, racialized or marginalized. And so, you know, at some point, it's not your responsibility and other people have, should go and do the work themselves before relying on you to kind of tell them how to think or how to feel. Also, I did want to mention that as a podcast, we had taken some time to reflect on these things and, and examine some resources and have some training. And one of the outputs from that has been, for the first time, a code of conduct, which basically is going to encapsulate our commitment to representing issues of racialization and marginalization in the content and also in the guests of our podcast and also obviously maintaining a really inclusive and positive space as a community. So as everyone's been mentioning, the pandemic has allowed for a lot of time for self-reflection and connection, as Dr. Rima Styra, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at U of T, and guest on Episode 3, reminded us. A lot of altruism that we've actually seen in the community, where people cared about each other and they were concerned about each other. They wanted to protect themselves, but they also wanted to protect others. And it would be really nice to see this kindness and caring moving forwards as time goes on. I also think that there's been a lot of self-reflection by people. And one of the 
big things that I think has happened is that people have a sense of gratitude as well, that we've been able to move forwards, but realize that there are many, many things that we still need to change and that we need to look at the positives, but also to look at the fact that there are many, many opportunities for us to improve at this point. And in our fifth live stream, we discuss the intersection between the pandemic and the climate change crisis. Now, it feels like a lifetime ago, but climate change was actually named the most pressing political issue at the last Canadian election. In reflecting on the parallels between the global responses to the COVID crisis and climate crisis, Gideon Foreman, climate change policy analyst at the David Suzuki Foundation, raised some very helpful lessons that we have learned from the COVID crisis that can be used to help address the climate crisis as well. I mean, I think we have to be careful against, you know, what I would call sort of silver lining. I mean, some some of the commentary that's coming out of the pandemic in the environmental movement is always in it wonderful that we're, you know, seeing these improvements in, in things like air pollution. I, th- I think the first thing to say is that the pandemic is a terrible tragedy, uh, full stop. Uh, it's been horrific uh, for people around the world and it's and we're not finished with it yet. So we have to acknowledge that first and foremost. It is quite extraordinary how we have adjusted the fact that we're flying much less, the fact that we're working from home so much more. That is all, I think, rather hopeful because it shows that we could make big changes that could also address the climate crisis. It shows that we can work and drive less. It shows that we can have business meetings and fly less, right? And we can do it very quickly if we have to. So I think that's one of the key lessons is that we can we can make big changes quickly if we need to as a society. I think the other thing that comes out of COVID in terms of a lesson is that we have to listen to the scientists. I mean, when we look back on the early days of COVID, what came up again and again was that our public health professionals, our medical officers of health, who after all are scientists, first and foremost, they were taking charge. And in most cases in Canada, we were listening to them, right? They were telling our mayors and our premiers and our federal government what to do. And in large measure, the politicians listen to them. And on the climate crisis, likewise, we have to listen to our scientists, right? Our scientists are saying, our best scientists are saying, we have to make dramatic reductions in our greenhouse gas emissions within the decade. And then finally, I think another lesson coming out of COVID is that if we want to, we can work internationally uh, across silos in a quite nonpartisan way. And I think we were saying this in Canada as well. We're putting differences aside and working in a nonpartisan way for the betterment of public health. Do you think the lessons that Gideon mentioned can be successfully implemented in our efforts to address the climate change crisis? Nathan, maybe we can start with you. So I think Gideon kind of hits it on the head here that, you know, when the need to take collective action appears, humans on Earth are able to do this. And we, I think it's the first time I think we to ourselves confirmed that we were able to do this was during, uh, you know, in the late... 90s and early 2000s, this whole ozone hole that was appearing in our atmosphere, and then all the actions that were taken to remove CFCs from all of the uh, devices and refrigerators, etc., that were using them. So I think that, you know, there's this proof of concept that, yes, we can take action together, and that we can take action on something like the climate. This is something that is possible for us. I think that's a great point. Um, But I think another point that Gideon also touches on is that One of the problems with the ozone layer, that was amazing how we tackled that. But after that, there was the perception that, oh, we had solved the problem and that we can move on and that we don't really necessarily need to worry about the other problems that need to be tackled related to climate change. So I I think an important aspect as well is to kind of maintain that momentum. I will say a lot of this is very related to the time horizon of the issue, right? For more immediate issues, we have a lot more will. And I I think that does cloud some of our judgment because climate change isn't stopping. And we've seen this year has been one of the hottest years on record. We have uh, the ice caps melting. And like you can't stop any of this without drastic action. As we heard, climate change was a huge topic for the elections. And now... It's completely overshadowed and many regulations have been overturned to help industry and help the economy. And and while that's important, I think we also have to keep in mind that climate change isn't going anywhere and we still need those regulations. I guess I'll also add on to that too, because I like how you bring up time horizons and that, you know, the problem with the ozone layer 
was a very short time horizon. We could see this happening. It was deteriorating and we could tell what the agent was causing and then we could address the issue. With SARS, it was it was kind of a bit of a like, you know, drill for a pandemic. But at the same time, you know, same thing. It was a very immediate issue and we were able to deal with it very quickly. What's interesting about climate change is that it's you're right, it's very long term. It's on a decades long scale. And what's interesting about COVID then is that it sits kind of in in between between these short time horizons and extremely long time horizons. So I think this in part will be a really interesting test for our society. Can we deal with at least a midterm issue and deal with it successfully? And maybe that will give us more hope than for something like a longer term issue like climate change. Just bouncing off that, the difference between COVID and climate change is also the outcomes are much more visible and quantifiable for COVID. Like you have people not getting infected, people are living longer that do get infected versus with climate change. It's it's going to be a slow, gradual, very dragged out process, right? Also, not to get very political, but there's just no political will there to look out for people 20, 50 years in the future. One last point I just want to bring up in terms of at the beginning of the pandemic, we thought that perhaps a positive aspect would be that there would be these decreases in carbon emissions because of this change in behavior. But I think we definitely need to be careful about that and not kind of overemphasizing that because one, in the end, the carbon emissions, the change is not really enough to kind of eradicate the impact of our behavior up until this point. As well, secondly, we don't really know or we're just kind of beginning to learn how the second wave of handling the pandemic is going to impact the environment. And I think just tying together all of what we've just discussed, the outcomes of COVID are a lot more tangible and we see it. We All of us know of some person that's been affected, whether that's yourself or a family member or a friend. Whereas with climate change, you know, you really aren't able to see those immediate outcomes and therefore the impetus for self-accountability to, you know, create sustainable change, I think, is going to be a lot more difficult. And we've already um, experienced that with the climate crisis. So I think a lot of excellent points were brought up and I would definitely encourage everyone to listen to the full discussion on the topic of climate change and COVID but our guests had a lot to say on the intersection of these two crises. So the entire COVID Decoded series was a really big undertaking for our team and a first for the podcast. And it was an incredible learning opportunity. And for me, at least, it was a nice weekly constant to have throughout this pandemic. We've talked a lot today about our own reflections on the discussions that we had, but I wanted to pose one final question to all of you hosts. What was something you've learned about yourself and how you've coped throughout the pandemic? Grace, can you start us off? Sure. So I think there have been a number of things that I've learned. So first, I feel like we can all relate to kind of suddenly being pretty isolated from your community. Definitely kind of taught me a lot of gratitude for the relationships in my life, for my family, for just those regular interactions, also my lab as well. Those regular interactions that I just suddenly had to really work a lot harder to maintain. Uh, Secondly, Uh, One of the things I've learned kind of completely switching my working environment from my lab and often coffee shops to my home was a really interesting experience. And I think kind of being able to wake up in the morning and control every aspect of my day in terms of in terms of where I was and my time spent and how I organized my day. I had a lot more control over that. Being able to wake up every day and kind of control your day and your environment a lot more than you necessarily would uh, before the pandemic kind of gave me an opportunity to think a bit more and learn a bit more about my strengths and weaknesses, what makes me productive, how I kind of manage my energy. That's great. Yagnesh, what about you? Uh, I learned how loud my neighbors are uh, (laughs) right when I have to work. (laughs) More seriously, though, I will say uh, I went through a lot of emotions uh, when this first started. Um, A lot of it is because... I'm an international student, so my family is not in the country. There's a bit of anxiety there. Like my mom's a a doctor, so she has to go deal with some of these uh, high-risk populations. So it's just something that's always in the back of your mind. Um, It's not something you can't do anything about. Um, I have started calling them more often, which is nice. We we chat more. I'll definitely take that with me going forward. 
because I think the this just made us realize like how fragile everything is. Nathan? I saw a lot of my extrovert friends kind of struggle with the pandemic, especially within about like a month after lockdown started, so about April. And I, as a self-proclaimed introvert, did not really feel the same need to see people, I guess. Like, I was so happy working from home and just hermiting and was, but like, you know, come around June or like early July, I think it finally got to me then. Like, you know, it took me the better part of three months. Yes, introverts can actually get cabin fever and like desire to seek social interaction at some point eventually. But yeah, I, I, I learned that about myself, that I actually, from time to time, may actually seek social interaction. And Jesse, how about you? Yeah, I just want to echo that point about being an introvert. There was that meme going around like, oh, this is quarantine. This is just my day-to-day life. Um, but, uh, you know, I am I have been privileged as well, like living with uh, my girlfriend here in Kingston. And also um, there's been some other people in the house, uh, her sister and everything. So, uh, you know, reflecting on the privilege to, to have those social interactions, whereas, you know, some people literally living alone, I think this would be especially, especially hard on them. And then the other thing that I'm especially appreciative of is just how fragile our way of life is when you when you think about uh, public transit and enjoying social outings or uh, even shopping at Bulk Barn. Like I really avoided the waste with that. So that's been a little bit hard to transition away from. But like Gideon said, you know, talking about things that we've learned from this, um, the fact that we can make these huge systemic changes is is kind of inspiring. And hopefully we can make the most out of that. And finally, Aaron. Yeah, I think the biggest theme that, you know, all of you have touched on is really just gratitude. I think feeling so grateful for having a roof over my head, um, for healthy family, healthy friends, to be able to have the privilege to work from home, to have a job, to have the technology available, to be able to connect with friends and family remotely. And I think maybe just one thing to finish this off is that I'm just also so grateful for this incredible team um, that is our podcast team. I have honestly been so impressed by the way that we've all pulled together to create this incredible live stream series. Honestly, I don't think any of our listeners or any of our audience will know the amount of details and stress that we have um, overcome and that we have sorted out. Honestly, I, I, I still can't believe that we've managed to pull this off and that we're actually recording our wrap-up episode. So I just wanted to give a huge shout out to every single member of our team. And I'm just very grateful for each and every one of you. That was really sweet. Thank you, Aaron. And thank you to everyone for sharing your own lessons learned. It sounds like we've all had a chance to learn something new about ourselves and also just appreciate everyone that we have in our lives. And, you know, that sounds like a great place to wrap up today's episode. Thank you to all of our incredible guests for joining the COVID Decoded series this summer. And we just want to leave you with one final clip from Dr. Timothy. This is an opportunity right now during COVID. The pain is real. The mistrust is real. But also the resistance and the hope is real. And I think, you know, we can do this, but we we have to continue to think differently, think outside of that box. We've got to be accountable for historical and current day traumas and dramas, as I like to say, and and look towards the future with changing the systems that create this, this violence and really create health equity path. The COVID Decoded series would not have been possible without the support of our Pillar Affinity sponsors, TD Insurance and MBNA. Check out the link in our show notes for preferred insurance rates and credit card rewards for U of T alumni. You can also find the links to all of the full COVID Decoded streams in the show notes. And finally, a very, very special thank you to the COVID Decoded organizing team. Our hosts, Yagnesh, Jesse, Aaron, Thamia, Nathan, and Grace. Our moderators, Melissa, Richie, and Frank. Our logistics team, Zainab and Stefania. And our audio engineer and live stream wizard, Alex. And one final very special thank you goes out to Kat, who was the co-organizer of this whole event, as well as the host of the host today. So thank you, Kat. And finally, we want to extend the most special thank you to our outgoing executive producers, Mel and Grace, public relations execs, Kat and Aaron, and our promotions and social media exec, Thamia, who are all leaving the show for bigger and better things, after many of them started with the show four years ago. There's no doubt that all of us at Raw Talk are going to miss their passion for science communication and podcasting expertise. 
Raw Talk podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website, rawtalkpodcast.com, and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our website when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw.